Next, Devlin Ross is the author of six books, including the acclaimed Letters to My White Male Friends. His journalism has been featured in Time Magazine, The Guardian, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. He won the National Association of Black Journalists Investigative Reporting Award for his coverage of jury exclusion in North Carolina. Dax is now a principal at the Social Impact Consultancies, Dax Dev, and Third Settlements, both of which focus on designing strategies to generate equity in workplaces and educational spaces alike. During our time together, we talked about the conflicts of oppositional black intellectuals like Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. And we did so through the lens of one of his own books, The Nightmare and the Dream, Naz, Jay-Z, and the History of Conflict of African-American Culture, a book he authored in 2008. Dax then shared his reasons for using Nas, Jay-Z, Biggie, and Tupac to frame a centuries-long discussion on what it means to be Black in America. We talked about the poetic rhyme and reason of these iconic hip-hop artists and why their song and story is so important to our culture at large. We also talked about the recent Supreme Court ruling, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard University, and its landmark decision about how college admission programs violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And we closed our time together by discussing Roland Fryer's recent article in the New York Times called Build Feeder Schools and Make Yale and Harvard Fund Them, an article that talked at length about why affirmative action needs to start well before the admissions process in our universities. I hope you learned as much as I did from Dax. Well, there we are, Dax Devlin Ross. <laughs> How are you, sir? Thanks for coming back on the show. My friend, I had to come off mute because I thought you were going to do your ramble, and then I was going to come off. It's already caught me no, off, it's cool. off guard here. I'm like, oh, no, oh God. <laughs> the ramble now starts. So, yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm oh. going back to mute now, but thank you for That's having fair. me back on the show, Joey. <laughs> You're welcome. Last we spoke, my friend, um, I invited you on the show to talk about your book, Letters to My White Male Friends, which was both a fantastic book uh, specific to prose. But what it really helped me understand was your plight, your upbringing, some of the indignities you suffered as a black man growing up in Washington, D.C. And I think that book helped me also understand a little bit about why you chose your profession, which is that of a lawyer who works in the DEI field <clears throat> and is trying to help uh, diversity be, in be part of our culture today, both within universities and corporations. We also talked a bit about the significant rise in DEI over the past decade at both of the universities and corporations, which we will obviously dive deeper into today. And then we discussed your specific approach to DEI, which we're going to get into at length today, versus some of the practitioners that I was asking you about. The Robin D'Angelo's of the world who wrote White Fragility, Too Much Acclaim, and then Imbram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, both intellectuals that have uh, big followings with their movements, uh, both at the university level as well as corporations. And so... For our conversation today, I would like to use the term identity synthesis in, in lieu of words like woke and identity politics. And the reason I mention that is because it was a definition coined by a young scholar at John Hopkins University named Yasha Monk. And what I liked that he did to this is he said, look, I don't know how to name what we're talking about. And there's a lot of authors out there making jokes about, let's just call it the thing, or let's call it this and that. And why he called it the identity synthesis was because he said it's an amalgamation of postmodernism, postcolonialism, and critical race theory. And the ideologies of that encompass a lot of the beliefs of the cultural left. And I love that because everything I've read about it really does kind of play into 
you know, the French scholars of Michel Foucault and Derrida and Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell and all those folks in the critical race theory. So when I use that term, that's what I mean, <laughs> as opposed to woke mm -hmm. or the very divisive words that we're now using in our body politic. So I also wanted to basically, I just as I shared with you off camera, you know, I spent years, last five years reading as many books as I could, specifically on James Baldwin, Medgar Evers, Dr. King, W.E.D. Du Bois, uh, Booker Washington, mm -hmm. and then obviously Ta-Nehisi Coates. Kim T. Yes, yes, Booker T. Booker T. Washington. <laughs> you're right. I did forget, forget that. the T, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, over the last couple of years, conversely, I've read a lot of essays and books and critical thinking of black academics that push back on some of these narratives. Um, and some of these thinkers include Roland Fryer of Harvard, Glenn Lurie of Brown, uh, John McCorder of Columbia, and then some young black intellectuals like Thomas and Chatterson Williams and Coleman Hughes, <clears throat> excuse me, both intellectuals and authors and thinkers that I respect. And so that's kind of, as I said before, to point to the obvious, I've spent the last five years of my life trying to understand racism in all its forms, um, its history and its perspective. And like anything complex, the more I study, <laughs> the more confused I get. And that's why I like to bring on intellectuals like yourself to help me understand this. And then <laughs> I want to start our discussion today with a fantastic book I read on race called The Nightmare and Dream, Naz, Jay-Z, and the History of Conflict in African-American Culture. Oh, you did it. You just I, did it. You, you went where I was going to go. My God, you got it. Anyway, continue. So there you go. There was my... I'm, I'm like blown away. I'm blown away that you actually... We're, we're about to have an amazing conversation. The fact that you, I, I only want to interject, and I know you got to get back to it, but I want to no, say when you, were, when you were lifting up the dialectic between these, these streams of thinking, yeah. what I was going to say, had you not actually read my book, was that <laughs> this is part of a dynamic that persists throughout the history of African-American thinking. So if we get caught up inside of it and thinking it is new, then we yeah. miss the entire point because this is a pattern of relationship between black ideas and their relationship to white and predominantly white mainstream America. They're always having to be mediated. These ideas are always in relationship to the silent partner in the dance. Yeah. You know, so yeah, thank you for bringing that book in. Well, buddy, and thank you. It was actually my favorite book of yours. And for, for the reason that I mentioned now is that it, the framing of it was so cool because to your point, this this dialectic has been going on for hundreds of years and these conflicts have not, they're not new. And what I specifically liked, the way you frame this, as you said, is it's the complex conflict of oppositional black icons like Biggie and Tupac, Jay-Z and Nas, which I thought was a truly clever way to frame this discussion. And the neat mm -hmm. thing about this is that as I've talked to younger black intellectuals and younger black students, a lot of them listen and adhere to the poets, which these mm -hmm. men were, right? I think a yeah. lot of people get lost in the in the genius of these men, specifically as social scientists. They are not just rappers. They're not just entertainers. These are big thinkers. And they're taking yeah. these really big constructs yeah. and they're bringing them down to mm -hmm. layperson vernacular in the form of song and theme and, yeah. and dance and, you know, cadence. And yeah. it's just beautiful. So I, I, I commend and, you and on that. And conversation. And they're also in conversation with their ancestry. Like that's the thing about it is at a certain point in time, the reason why I thought Nas and Jay-Z was a really relevant conversation to interact with from this historical lens of conflict was that they 
very evidently were identifying themselves with different streams of the Black American journey and story. At one point, Nas was very much identifying himself with the, with the story of Black militancy. And at one point, Jay-Z was very, you know, forthright in his association with, you know, Black, black capitalism and the Black ascendance, which goes back to Booker T. Washington and a pathway towards um, the pathway t- towards mobility and access to the M- American dream is through assimilation. Mm-hmm. And there's a belief there that if I can elevate myself, if I can be excellent, then I can actually become part of this larger American story and I can transform it as well. This is why I love Jay, because he transforms it. I don't know if everybody's objective is to transform it, you know, but you just got me going, man. Like, I can't even know. Like, I, I'm just like... Thank you. It's just, it's just really fun. That, that book I wrote back in 2008. Yeah. And I always felt it was like I wrote it in like this dash of inspiration over like eight month period when I tried to digest and process so much what I was feeling around the tensions I experienced in my own body, this tensions that I experienced in my own life, you know, I, having grown up a certain way, grown up and gone to law school and had friends and been in worlds where, you know, the, the aspiration for um, ascendance and for enjoying the fruits of the American dream were very real and tangible. And, you know, feeling as though there was undone, there was incomplete work in this community, in the Black community. And some of it was connected to that immediate history that I grew up out of, which was the civil rights movement. And once I pat, once I'm in that, I'm like, I can't just turn my back on that. I can't just leave that behind. So I find myself in this tent, in this point of what I think a lot of us struggle with, which, which therefore breeds a sophisticated analysis, because that means I'm spending a lot of my time in my twenties and my thirties, even my forties, trying to understand what you've and others have spent a, a, a considerable amount of time doing, but that's just what I've been doing for my entire intellectual life is trying to make sense of what it means to live in this body, in this world, and to look at it from different vantage points. Man. Yeah. No, and that's why our station is important to me. It is. It's important to me too, because as I've said, not just not just my friend, you're someone I look up to as a thinker. And so I I lean on you for this kind of stuff. And so I think that Mm. let me ask you this. You wrote in your book about nationalists versus integrationists, the dilemma. And do you believe, can you help our readers, our listeners understand the difference between a integrationist and a nationalist? Um, I think nationalism is a phenomenon that is very present in our conversation, our global politics right now, Mm -hmm. nationalism and national identity. And one of the things that black folks in America have contended with is what is our national identity, even in the absence of what typically constitutes the legitimacy of national identity, which is land. So even though we don't have land, how do we still create a national identity? Even though we're disrupted and dispersed and distributed, how do we have a national and And if we look at history and we look at the broader society, those cultures that are successful are ones that have a strong national identity and a shared sense of purpose and have some alignment and agreement around what they're trying to achieve, right? Mm-hmm. 
that is often seen as a threat in American society because it is perceived that therefore we are not assimilating ourselves into the broader American body politic. It is us not being American enough because we're trying to craft, craft and maintain an identity that's connected to our blackness. That's seen as a threat, right? But some folks feel like that's not just a threat. It's a, it's a, it's a survival tactic. It's how we've been able to even continue to persist to this day has been because we created national identity, culture. Now that's been fractured, shifted and changed over the industrial revolution, the, the migration patterns and now generational change. And now there's different, so there's so many different, so much diversity in our experience. I think it's harder than ever to really have a national identity. And that's okay. That's okay. But the flip side to answer your question on the integration is, you know, assimilation is a, is a sort of similar, is a synonym for the term, but the notion being, and that's what's often sort of identified around Martin Luther King's dream and aspiration and why so many folks feel drawn to his I have a dream speech and have and other folks feel frustrated that that's the speech that's always elevated to demonstrate who, my, who Martin Luther King was because they want to say, but there was more to his story mm-hmm. and it wasn't integrationism in the way that you were presenting it as. You're presenting it as this two-dimensional phenomena and it is much more layered than that. So it's like even the even the conversation around what it means to be integrated in American society, I, I tend to think is not fully um, embodied. The idea of a person that we typically use to symbolize integration, that being Dr. King, those two ideas have lifted up in opposition to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, some people call them. I call it the nightmare and the dream. It's not my identity. It's not my own idea. It's an idea that's existed with other authors and thinkers. But this notion of how to be black in America, do I, do I accept that America is a nightmare or a place that I will never be fully embraced and at home and therefore hold a national identity that will give me something to anchor? Do I see America as the dream that it, you know, it expresses itself to the world as, and quite frankly, even there's plenty of evidence around me that proves it has the potential to be. Do I, do I, do I go in? And in order to be a part of that dream, what is historically meant is that you have to participate in the American idea, which is you got to go to college. You got to, you know, you buy into American exceptionalism. You have to really kind of get into the sort of, you have to buy into those values in some way. Even Jay Z does. Like it's not as if he's lazy, right? right? He's, he's pushing out albums. He's, he's hustling. He's grinding. He's still, He's, he's, he's becoming diversely, he's investing in all these different spaces. He's still expressing an American ethos around, you know, around the access, the dream. So, I mean, I, I'm going to, I'm going to stop because I know I could keep going, but like, I want to, I want to just be responsive to the questions. I'm excited about where this conversation can go and hope your listeners are, you know, really appreciating what you have already done as a, as a journalist. My gosh, man, you're, your ability to like bring work into the space that I can react to and be in present context with you is special. So I'm excited for this ride. Oh, well, thanks. Cause you did your homework. You did your homework. You can't <laughs> well, become correct. I do do my homework. That is one thing I didn't do it in high school, college. So I figured I'd do it later. <laughs> <laughs> hey bro. You know. So let me ask you this. Do you think then integration is, is also synonymous with assimilation? It's a great question, man. Um, I don't know what I thought back in 2008 and what I read. Well, let me tell you what you thought. 
I was too deep into Franz Fanon and Franklin Fraser and the notions of of the people's revolution. (laughs) So the Mm. reason I I mentioned that I was, you know, this is 15 years ago. You wrote this. Yeah. Do you still believe that piece? Where do you, how much has changed in that 15 years for you? Because that was part of, I mean, I mean, I maintain an analysis of, um, of, of America and a critique of the country as a, not just as like a, um, an idea, but it's practices, legal, political, economic, social. I maintain a critique that I believe is my right, that I believe is um, my obligation actually as an American to maintain a critique and a, and a commitment to improvement. Right. I feel like as long as you have maintained a commitment to and a foot in the work and the struggle to make it more perfect, then having a critique is actually healthy. It is welcomed. It's in, I, I strive to be informed in my critique. I strive to be balanced in my critique. But I do still have a fundamental appreciation for what radical politics opened my eyes to, which is mm-hmm. the notion that I operate within. Um, you know, I mean, the, America is a set of choices around how we're going to arrange our economic policies, how we're going to arrange our social policies and set of choices. And those choices actually have been historically demonstrated to have benefited some folks at the expense of others. We have to contend with that. That's a real thing that has happened and continues to happen. And that is what that radical critique has allowed me to see is that those folks who were not, who have been left behind, it wasn't because they were lazy. It wasn't because they didn't try and didn't want. It was because the opportunities weren't created for them. And as a matter of fact, it might have been structures that had been arranged to ensure their demise. That is a healthy critique that can, that can move us. So yes, I do. And I think I continue to try to nuance it, develop it and expand it while I also continue to engage in my own accountability work as an American, as a global citizen, which is how do I, how do I contribute to making it better and not just criticizing? That's a great answer. Thank you, sir. So you also, with regards to Du Bois double consciousness, you wrote at the time I was a burgeoning communist sympathizer who believed that class struggle was the roadblock to revolution. On some level, it was the recognition of Du Bois's contradictions an elitist who celebrated peasant culture an Afrocentrist mm-hmm. who sat with Shakespeare and in my own life, that troubled me the most. What do you mean by that? Du Bois' dialectic experience um, was challenging because I thought like one needed to be one or the other, really. Like you, mm. you needed to actually, you, like to, the notion that um, of the both and, I think it, it needed time for it to make sense for me. It need, I needed time for that to be realized as a possibility because I, I thought, I just didn't know, I just didn't know that that was acceptable, that that was okay, that like one could be both of those things. So when I started reading and writing and thinking about things as a young, as a younger man, like I felt like I couldn't present it to my friends. I couldn't be an intellectual in these ways. I couldn't, it didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel like, I didn't know if it, how it would be received. Turns out a bunch of them were as well, dealing with some of the same thing, but we didn't know how to bring it together and use it as generative building space. We were just all kind of like, ah, but when we're together, we have to perform. Like we're performing a certain identity of blackness, like right. the music we're listening to, the way we're vibing, but but not fully sure. We don't know how to do those two things at once. So seeing it in those other spaces was destabilizing in some ways. It was like, 
how, how is this? I don't. Hmm. Yeah. See, that's cool. and, So now as a father, yeah. husband, lawyer, DEI practitioner, yeah. you see the, you see the duality of Du Bois differently. Yeah. You accept it now? I think that I accept it. Well, no, first of all, there's no, I think. I, I'm a, I, I like to, I'm a much more humble person than I perhaps have ever been in my life. Um, life does that to you. Life does that to Yeah, it does. It humbles you. And I'm, you know, I'm a fighter, I'm a struggler, I'm still a deep believer, and I'm a, you know, justice seeker. And I'm also just, I am, a, I appreciate more of what it must have been like for him to be who he was on his journey in that point in time when he was oh, right. on his journey. You know, just it's mind boggling what he was up to and what he was doing. And without, you know, real guidance or any kind of like model for having done it before, he was the first, mm-hmm. you know, and he did it for so, so long. I and mean, the dude's evolution, Du Bois' evolution, even after the age of 50, is incredible. I mean, you know, it's so funny, you know, he, you know, not so funny, but, you know, I don't know if you've been following, I don't know, like this Menendez, this uh, uh, Senator Menendez situation, but he's been oh, yeah. charged with being a, a foreign agent. Back in 1951, Du Bois was charged. He was at the age of 81 years old. He was charged with being a foreign agent under the same law that Menendez was charged under. And that time, Du Bois was running for Senate. He was running for the U.S. Senate seat in New York. And yeah, he was running as a third-party candidate, and he was likely not going to win. But the fact that the man even thought to do that, and the government actually... They put up a phony case against him as an agent of a foreign, you know, a foreign government because he had been part of this, you know, this, this, uh, this peace treaty, that this Stockholm peace treaty that they were trying to, you know, disseminate across the globe to keep these people from blowing us up. You know, right. now that they developed these bombs and he was conceived because he was a peace seeker, he was perceived to be a communist. So just when I started to learn more about his journey, which I've spent more of my time doing in the last decade as well, it's just... It's humbled me to understand that, like, hey, people keep to keep evolving. Don't don't lock them into a moment in time. Don't assume that because in the, the people who are living in good faith, not like bad, like who, and when I say by good faith, like they're 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 honestly facing the day every day. And they're honestly asking themselves the hardest questions they can ask themselves. And they're honestly willing to revise the ways that they've seen the world based on new information. This is what I saw Du Bois continue to do. And I saw my, and I'm, I hope that I could do that with my life. And much more, much more than, than you bring in fatherhood. I mean, I am humbled every, I woke up this morning, two-year-old on one side, four-year-old on the other side. My wife's in New York on vacation and I'm just trying to hold it together. Like, I'm just, <laughs> I have not, like, I, I slept, they like all over the place. And I'm like, I just, I was, they didn't, we fought to a draw last night. It was a draw, you know, and tonight I have to get ready for another battle, right? That I do not yep. know if I'm going to win, you know? <laughs> no, it's wonderful. I, I'm ahead of you. I got a 12 and a 10 year old now. So I, I've gone through that. I got the battle scars to prove it. But yeah, it's, it's awesome being yeah. a daddy. Yeah, it really oh, humbles, humbles, humbles you a thousand percent. You actually write in this specific to Booker T and Du Bois, you say, rather than negotiate a truce with the Du Boisian sect, Washington chose to fight them, tearing black America into irreconcilable ideological camps that were both ironically funded by white patronage. Since the power struggle with black Americans has become increasingly fractious, and yet the either or paradigm continues to exist. 
So that's where I was when I was mm. reading that. I was like, he's still not a big fan <laughs> of Booker T. Not not in the pejorative no, sense, I, but just I, his I ideology versus Du Bois, right? It's it's oh. it's more of the that's why I was asking about the assimilation yeah. piece, because to me, yeah. what I what I gleaned from your writings on that was that he leaned into more of that. We need to be more white. Not he yeah. didn't say that. I'm this is my my inference, but like we yeah. need to cooperate more as opposed to pushing yeah. back, you know, and I, yeah. I think that was kind of but where the cooperation. But the problem with the cooperation, not to cut you off, is that he was also saying. Lessen yourself for now. Shrink right. yourself. Allow yourself to be in a subservient role. And mm-hmm. that may well, and if we prefer, and if we perform well in this subservient role, then we will get more access. And I think my, my resistance to that is, but what have we already been doing? Right. Why do we need to continue to play this? What further, you know, why? why and, and I think the resistance that Du Bois has is to that as well. He's like, how can you ask this of people? But then I think Booker T is like, well, if I don't ask this of you, we will be slaughtered. We could be, I mean, I think that that's the other existential component here is that Booker T Washington is definitely aware of the existential threat that is posed by black folks resisting, physically resisting in potential. Like you yeah. will not win that battle. But then sometimes the objective isn't to win. Maybe it's to, you know, do something else. And what I loved yeah. about this, what I loved about this specifically was to your mention earlier that this has been going on for hundreds of years. We've had this division, even between the black yeah. communities, right? And so yeah. that's kind of where me as an outsider looking in and trying to figure all this complexity out. Yeah. I look at intellectuals, as I mentioned. Um, do you look at someone like Washington, Booker T, Du Bois, Frederick Douglass? I mean, and this is what I even have my notes. I see similarities between the rivals of Ta-Nehisi Coates and Glenn Lurie as an example, right? As far as the way they look at the world. And then yeah. Imbram Kendi's versus Roland Fryers of the world. And these are yeah. all, all men of letters. The same pattern. Yeah, they're all men of letters. They're all, I think, dignified human beings. I don't see any dunking. I don't see any name calling. There's no ad hominems. Yeah. But there's a real divide between, yeah. you know, the black intellectuals that, yeah. I was first drawn to. And then after, mm-hmm. you know, like any good reporter, you try to figure out, all right, well, <laughs> let's go look and see all of the yeah. other thinkings and yeah. machinations of what's going on there. Yeah. And, and I think that's that's yeah. a piece of what I think is really important. And that leads me into yeah. some of the it's, questions you... Uh, go ahead. No, man, I, I think what you're, you know, well, I want to I hear your questions, but I I I have found... The very reason, you know, I have found it harder for myself to engage in some of the public debate. You know, it's not like I've been writing more stuff about this and engaging because to me, and I don't mean this to be dismissive of that, it's to say like, that is noise. And that noise has always been there. So the question becomes, what's your, for people like me, it becomes, what is your work right now? Your work isn't mm-hmm. to like, you understand that that is, that is actually, there are people who are 
deciding to publish these points of view. There are folks that are deciding to present them in, in panel discussions and to feature them in articles. These are all decisions that are connect that aren't necessarily connected to me and aren't necessarily, in my view, even really reflective of the greater issue that we're trying to contend with, in which and probably the broader streams and currents in which folks actually have commonality and share and share share commonality. It's a focus on these differences as a cre- a way to create another wedge, you know, to, to wedge to wedge divides and to create a broader perception that there is, you know, not this broad support for social justice initiatives that it's that it appears that black people by and large are seeking. By elevating, and I've talked to you about this, by elevating ideas held by, I think it would be any, I think I'd, I'd love to see the data that would contradict what I'm about to say, but, but our decidedly minority point of view, even in the academy, as it relates to is questions of sort of the black experience, black intellectual, you know, um, engagement, sort of black product, like whatever you want to call it. Like there are significantly more voices that are on this that are articulating a point of view that is that it critiques America and offers a pathway forward that is grounded in some kind of um, recognition of past harm, whether that is reparations or some other forms of policies that are designed to redress work. That's where those folks are. It's not to say that we don't have an internal critique that we need to deal with as Black people. It's to say, let's look at the material conditions here. The material conditions on the ground tell us this. They look, if you look at the life cycle of Black people in America, Brian, if we're going to, if we are data-driven people Mm -hmm. and we say that we're data-driven people, then let's look at what the data tells us about more infant mortality, you know, maternal mortality, education outcomes, wealth access, job access, let's wealth accumulation. Pro- let's look at what the data shows us and let's just focus there. Right. And the data tells us a story. Now, if you're trying to tell me that the reason that the data is the way it is, is because of cultural factors and behaviors more than it is a result of system and structural decisions that we can decide to make different decisions around, then I have a problem, mm-hmm. right? Because then you're saying it's about me and it's my fault that I'm poor. It's my fault that I am, you know, that I haven't had that great education. It's my fault that my parents and my family are just, are, just, are, are, are you know, distributed across whatever that might look like. We're not intact. It's my fault. And I'm like, that's, we know that we know from trading places, man, if you saw trading places back in 1982, <laughs> that's all you needed to understand about the world. And you would know that if we just, but no, it's joking. I don't want to be silly about it, but I don't want to be glib. No, it, it wasn't really, it know? wasn't a really shining <laughs> example. It, 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 it worked. Even for my little brain, you know, I was probably stoned when I watched the movie, but <laughs> it did, it did clarify that. <laughs> no, and it's not to diminish the hard work. That, and again, I know that what happens then is this becomes this question of like, how do we, reward exceptionalism how do we reward people who work hard and i'm and i listen i i i work hard to people who work harder than me they you know i, I tend you know I, I want to you know be a benefit to society and be a benefit to my family my family financially and otherwise i get that and so i know that there's and i don't and i'm not pushing for a society in which people are not rewarded you know for their for their efforts and for their achievements and their you know i'm not pushing for that i am saying that there's we have Plenty. I'm just saying that there's plenty. There's we have enough. We have enough food. We got enough. We got enough. We have enough space. 
we have enough that we can actually create more for those who have not had as much. And your quality and our quality of life and those of us who are worried about the fact that we will not be rewarded for our, I don't, that's not, that's not, that is not a necessary outcome of providing more opportunity for more people. Those two things are not in opposition to one another. No. And, and so if I can't, if I don't hear those guys on that other end of the spectrum, able to engage in that sort of nuanced, you know, a sort of discourse, I tune out. I just tune out. I don't really listen because I'm like, you know, we're having strong man arguments. We're just talking in the Tower of Babel. We're not actually grounding this and, you know, and who people really are and how people actually show up in the world. And I, I struggle with those. I struggle with that perspective, even within the black currents of thought that I respect. But then I also at the same time have to say, Yo, for real, man, and we just keep it real. Do you really believe that? If I were to take you around this country and put you, know, put you in all sorts of communities, would you still hold that point of view? Really? I don't know if you would, man. And well, and that do, leads... Then, you know, go ahead. Here's a situation. You wrote in emails that we were talking about. I said, hey, bud, I want to you know, talk about some shit. I want you to talk about yeah. some shit. You said what I'd like to actually talk about is indoctrination and speech policing of the hard right, which presents this as a justification for pushing back on DEI and framing it as anti-democratic. And I thought that was a great conversation for us because it, it continues yeah. what we're talking about now. Obviously, most folks of reason don't have... Well, I shouldn't say that. Most folks of reason are, agree that DEI has meaning and merit and a place in our culture. Mm -hmm. The detractors, however, are very vocal that it is poison, that it is indoctrination, that it's wrong mm -hmm. and anti-democratic. So, I mean, give me some examples there, what you mean, what you're coming from, because this is why your expertise as a subject matter expert is so important. It's what you do. This is what you mm -hmm. spend your life doing and you have spent your life doing. And so you are a credentialed, successful businessman in this realm. What do you see when you talk about, let's just say, hard right politics as it relates to DEI. What does that look like when you say indoctrination? What does that mean? So fundamentally what the right doesn't want and doesn't like when it comes to critical race theory is the injection into the American story of a view that there has been a structured pattern of exclusion of people of color, particularly black people. It finds that uh, fundamentally repulsive, repugnant idea. And because it finds it repugnant, it adopts, it pulls off the shelf this idea of freedom to think and free speech and free speech rights as a means to deflect and defend its territory without having to fully acknowledge that in even th that there is that we are not operating in a society that is um, that doesn't already have a set of beliefs that have been in many ways adopted by some group of people and those beliefs that they you know are greatly informed by you know judeo -Christi christianity greatly informed by obviously the adam smiths of the world you know greatly informed by you know, the industrialists of the world, like that is a, that is an ideology too. And it is an ideology that 
has been defined by and by people who have been direct beneficiaries of there's sort of like um, the, the the beneficiaries of of American dominance. Okay. It's worked for them. It worked for you know Henry Ford. It worked for you know and you know the uh, the um, Rockefellers, you know, the, the Rockefellers, <laughs> the Robert Barons of the world. I mean, that's one term they used to describe them. And so, therefore, I think there is an unwillingness to engage with what Howard Zinn would recall, would call the people's history that needs to be added to this, the prevailing story and a concern and a worry that by adding that story, we somehow will lose who we are. I actually hear and do believe these people, that this folks on the right, there's an, they don't just fear like the displacement of the narrative, but they do, they, they fear that, By adding in a story about, by officially acknowledging the imperfections of the American story in the ways that critical race theory is asking, it is in some way going to be, it poses an existential threat. They perceive that just the mere integration of those ideas is somehow going to destroy America. And I've tried to take that as seriously as a real, like when I hear it, it feels inflammatory and hyperbolic, but I'm trying to take it actually seriously. Do they, there's a fund that they do believe that it will destroy something. So what is it is worried about, they are worried about destroying? What is the this concern of destruction that they're speaking about? Well, I tend to think that it's directly connected to um, not just wealth, and the overwhelming sort of, um, you know, the overwhelming wealth held by folks who identify more disproportionately with the hard right. Like mm-hmm. if you look at the, like the proportion and not just wealth in terms of do- dollars in the bank, but land, wow. you know, all those other things, power. There's, <clears throat> there is a, there is a, a threat that one, 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 as a, it's a human response. I think it's a group response. We talked about nationalism earlier. It is an actual response that then will be rationalized thereafter. Like I feel like there, there's a there's a response that's now being rationalized as one that needs to be you know met with the utmost force, and therefore we will need to you know construct our Supreme Court in such a way that's going to express an increasingly minority point of view. We need to construct our Congress, and what we're seeing in Washington right now, I think, is a preface to more, more of what we will see in the future around the factoring of that party and the of the far right by, of that party and that party's that 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 faction of the far of the party's willingness to to disrupt the entirety of government in order to get its way. Mm-hmm. This is this is what's happening, and so the CR the pushback of the use of this idea of indoctrination is very very um, it's effective, but I also feel like it's also disingenuous. To me, I connected directly to the 1950s. I've studied, spent a lot of time studying the McCarthy era, era, and in many ways, it it follows a pattern of the ways in which anti-communist fervent and fervor overtook the American mainstream consciousness for a period of time. I don't see, I see similar patterns to what was happening in 1949 and 1950. And what's happening in 22, 2020, 2022 and 2023 mm-hmm. in this country, in this moment in time, like the hysteria around 
DEI, the hysteria around racial justice work, the, the notion that people who comprise 12% of the population plus our allies, you know, who, by the way, we've been here as long as anybody else and only have worked to make this a better country all the time. We want to now just blow this shit up. Like, I want to like, destroy it all for my own children. Like, is that really what you think I'm up to right now? You don't think I'm, so what you're saying to me is that I've, we have not contributed in any positive and effective way. And we have not when prevented, provided the opportunity to help to make this place greater. And so that in this context, you think that what we're up to right now is solely about trying to dis- undermine, disrupt, displace. That's all we care about. I am, it's like insulting. It's like, man, that's a very minimal, minim- minimal, you know, it's a very um, limited view of what we're up to. So I, I look at that indoctrination argument that's, that's being presented. And I do think that it's being now framed as anti-democratic. Like DEI work is now synonymous with being work that is, that is, that is antithetical to democracy. And it is being, it is antithetical to democracy because it shuts down dialogue. And it shuts down dialogue because it requires people to engage in some kind of group think, right? But that premise, but that's based on a premise that what we're up to and what people like me are trying to do is do that, which is insulting. Which is like, that's what you find you. That's what you. That's what you take away from my interaction with you. That I'm here to indoctrinate you, make you believe things that are not true. Wow. Hmm. You know, yeah. I look at. I look at. You know, I, I just. I just that 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 you know, I get emotional around that because it makes me feel like, wow. You know, when when my folks were, you know, when my folks found who were slaves found out that they were. You know that they could fight in this war, in war, in, in the civil war. They, they, in every war that they've had an opportunity to fight for, they line up in droves, and droves, and droves, and droves, and don't believe for a moment those people are not fighting for justice for their own, not just for the American flag. They're fighting for what it can be. So if you if you try to say, well, they were just there to fight, no, they were there fighting for their own too, mm-hmm. because we've always had a multiple objective. I mean, think about you know during World War II, it was the double V. You know, that was because out of World War One and because of the Red Summer of 19, you know, it was in 1919 when they all these black folks, black soldiers came home when they were abused and beaten and killed across the South after World War One. The only way that folks would get on board, like some of the intellectuals, like Du Bois in particular, would get on board with black folks supporting World War Two was under the double V campaign. Victory abroad, victory at home. They had to find a way to make them both in and make it make sense for them. But we don't talk about those kinds of things. Right. We just say, oh, he was a patriot because he went to fight in World War II. No, he went to fight in World War II and he was doing that. So the fight back home was going to be an easier one as well. Don't erase that story. But we erase it all the time in order to uplift our idea of the war hero, right? Mm -hmm. The war hero only cared about, you know, the flag, you know, only cared about the, you know, and that's, you've reduced us again and reduced our motives again. And so I'm now feeling reduced as a DEI practitioner to having these very simplistic motives, these very base motives. You've worked with me, you've interacted with me. Yeah, dude, I know. And that's exactly why this is so important. And I think just to move this from, you know, the abstract and they, let me ask you this. Christopher Rufo recently wrote a book, uh, which I read. And uh, I haven't, but you know, I'm really, yeah, it would be tough. It would be tough. (laughs) It it was called America's cultural revolution, how the radical left conquered everything. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for our chat, um, I went through my highlights of the book and chapter three is entitled the long March through the institutions. 
mm-hmm. it's exactly what you're talking about. It's indoctrination, and that's a big theme to his book. Yeah. And he writes at length about Marcuse and Michel Foucault and Derrida and all of the intellectual thinkers yeah. specific to that. Mm-hmm. And then he actually weaves that into the Stokely Carmichael's, Angela Davis's of the world who are criminals, right? Which he mm-hmm. intimates throughout the book. And then he quotes mm-hmm. how, here's a quote he wrote from Marcuse talking to Ruth Dushke. says, let me tell you this, that I regard the notion of the long march through the institution as the only effective way now more than ever. And then he continues to write specifically the professorships of people like Angela Davis and Elders Cleaver as examples of this indoctrination specific to the left. And this is where our schools now are fully indoctrinated to left, far left, as he calls it, the radical left, in that these institutions are teaching things to children. And he, you know, it's not just universities that are exactly what you talked about. He calls this indoctrination. So my question to you is that Christopher Rufo, for those who don't know, is a very loud voice on the conservative right, who is a member of the Manhattan Institute and scholar. Which is a, which is a, which is a center right. Very center right. Right. Yeah. Probably more right than right, more right than center. Okay. And then he, he is also the ombudsman for Ron DeSantis. And in Florida, Mm -hmm. he's been his job and he spent years actually articulating the branding and messaging of critical race theory. And he's attempted to adopt a lot of these, you know, anti-woke bills with Governor DeSantis in Florida, much of which was shot down, by the way. Greg Lukonioff talked about this at length, and he's he's the president of FIRE. They're losing these battles, by the way, as you know, as a lawyer. But I think the bigger piece is, you know, when you talk about indoctrination... But we're not losing, but let's be clear. We're losing these battles not because of the arguments that we're making, but the case, but the fact of the, the judges that are deciding. It's not that they're losing. No, no, no. I'm saying they because they, Rufo's lost, right? So uh, Rufo and yeah, Rufo I thought she didn't want the court cases. I thought no, she no, didn't no. Want for the court cases, Rufo Sorry and DeSantis that. have oh, lost those. Yeah, and they're yes, based on that. It's unconstitutional. Like you just can't. Yes. And that's why fire uh, Greg Lukanya for anyone who hasn't listened to him or read his books. He's a phenomenal thinker, specific to free speech. And so what he's talking about and fighting against Christopher Rufo's and the Ron DeSantis of the world, the reason I broached the subject is that those to me are proximate. Those are examples of people that are indoctrinating or believe that the cultural left is indoctrinating uh, deleterious ideas and ideologies to our kids. Yeah. 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 So I did, what are your, what are your thoughts on, I don't think I have, <laughs> it's a big stretch. What are your thoughts? No, man. No, no. I think, well, first of all, like, I'm interested. I, you, you, you do such a great job of just like asking the questions. And I'm also interested in how you react to some of these things as well. I mean, I know I interact with someone like Christopher Rufo as a person who's operating in bad faith. Just as I do the same thing with Ron DeSantis. These folks have been around. They, they're more sophisticated. They, they're not. Maybe maybe there's other things going on. I don't know necessarily with them as characters and human beings, but um, they are choosing to adopt a view of the world and of their opposition that is at least that's that's unnuanced, that is inaccurate, and I think is intentionally misleading to people who they know are not going to read deeply, are not going to do necessarily their own factual research in part because they've already been primed 
And when I mean by prime, they've already like the same way Pavlovian, you know, we talk about Pavlov's experiments, we've been primed to respond to certain terms and to certain arguments. And again, I go back to thinking about the 1950s and 1940s as an example. You know, the word indoctrination was one that was dog whistled all across the country when we when Hollywood actors and screenwriters were being blacklisted and other figures are being blacklisted. It was the reason we were, it's, it's the Salem witch trials. It's, you know, it's every time we've seen, it's the know nothing. It's the, it's, the, there's, there's been a pattern and a history of people waving the indoctrination flag as a form of misdirection, as a form of misdirection. It's to get yeah. folks to be focused on things that are, you know, that are emotionally emotionally triggering to get people like worked up and in ways they're not able to actually spend time to sit down and break down and make sense of like for instance if you were to ask someone could you define woke they would struggle what what do you mean by what do you how do you define equity couldn't do it for the life of them right if i ask these very basic questions fine and it's not because people aren't smart it's because they have been they've been uh, they have been told throughout their lives and they probably resist the notion of anybody telling them anything because we're all independent minded, free will, you know, free will benefiting human beings who are not influenced by anything in our lives. We're all just sort of figuring it all on our own. But what I would argue is otherwise, which is that part of why you as a man in your 50s come to spend that much time with the thinking of black writers is because throughout early part of your life, it was not presented to you as worth your time. Mm-hmm. I go to a lot of people's houses and I don't see yeah, I've seen more and more recent years, absolutely, more writers of color, more women writers, you know. I remember checking my own library at one point in like my 30s, like, yo, what is, do I not read women like that? Like, why, why are the majority of my books men? What's going on here, bro? I, it was like a moment I had to like check myself. And, you know, it, there are definitely, I've read Toni Morrison, I read Roger Lord, I read, you know, um, I mean, Zornier Host, I read the, you know, the black women, and I, but I was, I didn't do that. And I think there's a resistance sometimes to just do that deep, just do the simple reflection, just to simply ask and reflect on without being emotionally, like see where you go with it versus trying to like apply judgment to it all the time. And I find that when, when Rufo is speaking and he's getting that kind of response, it's, you know, rooted in, and I've done enough work with people to see this over and over again in my spaces is that they just haven't thought very deeply about these things. And he's offering them something that is very familiar, something that feels good. Right. And that conforms with the view of the world. Right. And, and he's done it at a right, the right moment in time, because there were people that were beginning to question and challenge themselves and go deeper. And what he provided was for those folks who were feeling some, 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 from this, for some for, for folks who were feeling some disequilibrium and who were looking for an anchor to get them back on solid ground, he gave that to them. Other people like yourself said, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'll engage with you, but I'm not going back. I don't know where I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't mean to assume you were somewhere else before you started this journey. But what I'm suggesting is that, is that there's enough there, enough there, there that you've explored and that you've encountered to, to allow you to, I think, want to continue to your own growth and inquiry without hardening into a position that is actually so impactful on the lives of so many people. Like to hold these positions that they hold is to hold, whether it's about reproductive justice, whether it's about trans justice, whether it's about, you know, it's about actually 
dimming another human being's life prospects. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> My view of Rufo is, is that, and I don't know, I don't speak to his intent. What I will say is that I think he believes everything he says. So I've studied mm-hmm. him. I've read his books. I've watched his lectures. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe for a moment that he's a grifter, right? He's not trying to make mm-hmm. a living doing this. But what I, what mm-hmm. I, what I do see in everything he does is the is the pull of audience capture, right? For part mm-hmm. of his own uh, financial Origins. success. Yeah, yeah, his own brand. He admits fully that his job as a, you know, a very influential thinker and very smart young man too, that he recreated the branding and messaging of critical race theory in the pejorative. Mm-hmm. And he that was his mission. And and he did that and encapsulated that through his relationship with Ron DeSantis in Florida. And that mm-hmm. to me is where I see the party, the GOP in general, glomming onto this narrative and this ideology that CRT is dangerous, that intersectionality is dangerous, that DEI is dangerous, that all of these, you know, educational tenets specific to understanding race in America and the, you know, the origins of oppression and systemic racism are bullshit, you know, and, and that, that it, 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 may not, it may not be bullshit. It may be that it's also divisive. I don't may use the word divisive or divisive. So it's more that I hear that I hear that it's bullshit argument, but I think that it's bullshit argument is less prevalent than uh, it's not helpful for us right now. Like it's actually pulling us apart. It's actually creating more, you know, more tension. It's creating, and in the workplace, it's actually getting in the way. Why people will abandon the workplace is getting in the way of us being able to be closer together. We need to be more bounded together. Right. So there's a, there's, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to disagree necessarily with the notion that they're dismissive of the ideas. I also feel like. Well, I mean, bullshit in the same way. I mean, bullshit mm-hmm. in the way of that it's not what they're, they being the deification of this, but mm-hmm. they, yeah, yeah. Being, they being like, hey, part of what comes across from the cultural left is that, and the, you can see this on the cover of magazines, you know, mm-hmm. um, Mother Jones had, you know, a, a recent cover that said, we're back in Jim Crow and, you know, we're similar mm-hmm. to this. And there's a lot of these narratives on the left that are fodder or chum for these thinkers on the right who will then take that and say, Hey, look how radical these people are. And so that's what I mean by that. I don't, I don't think they for a moment dis, you know, dismiss what took place in our origins. I think every, no one admits that, you know, slavery and chattel slavery was maybe the worst thing that's ever happened to us. And so that's not what I mean. I want to be clear on that, but I think that Mm -hmm. specifically with the, with these narratives, they're powerful because they are shared to your point, to a citizenry that is difficult to grasp. So like our our citizens are busy, right? They're yeah. working two jobs, 10 hours a day, yeah. that kind of thing. And so someone says, I don't understand what's going on. And then someone's, oh, listen to this smart young man. And so they do, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where that's where the indoctrination piece comes in. And so yeah, that and they but the thing is they but the thing is how does to me what I struggle with is how do they those the the they again how do those who find themselves responding to these ideas not identify themselves as being indoctrinated why is the indoctrination only a one-way street that's like it's it's like (laughs) from an intellectual as an intellectual 
being, I'm like, I would need to do some point of reflection and ask myself, hold up, am I maybe being indoctrinated? Like, do you just only allow for the indoctrination to exist if it's external to, you know, what's, what you perceive to be the right answer? or to feel like it is actually an accurate representation of reality and everything else outside of that is has to be considered indoctrination. To me, this is why we think about a failure. Well, I think we, as an education, um, as a society that, that cares, if we do care about education, I have this pet, pet argument that no one probably else otherwise agrees with me on. No one else thinks it's important, but it's mine and I care about it. But I think we focus too much on developing a critique in our way that we teach young people to think and not an analysis. And by that, I mean, it's like, I find that there's opinions everywhere and they're about, you know, as thin as like, you know, a, a sheaf of paper, but they're everywhere. But when you ask folks for analysis and to be able to follow any kind of um, reasonable or at least recognizable pattern of analysis that they can arrive at a conclusion with. And they, we don't do it. And I'm not just saying this as a judgment and not even saying that I do it always as effectively as I would like to be able to do it. It's like, it's not a skill that's taught. And so if you ask people to think about their own thinking, like if, to even reflect on one's own thinking about it, to be metacognitive about one's processes, you know, how you arrived at conclusions, what information did you discard versus information that you let in? You know, who did you decide to give attention to when they were talking versus who did you turn away from when they were talking? When Dax was on TV, did you just turn the channel because you assumed that he had nothing of value to say to you? But, and, and do you assume, do you, do you acknowledge that part of how we have come to be informed as, 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 as people who identify ourselves as black, white, brown, or whatever is racial identification? And I, it, it just, it, it, it's, it's baffles me and will always baffle me that when someone like this emerges and they present an argument that people begin to glom onto, and the very those are the same people who were being challenged to think about themselves and to reflect, there's not a conversation about that. Like, isn't it ironic that the very people who are having a hard time with the way the information, way that you know the conversation was going now have found this other thing that they can use and they're calling that not indoctrination. And I'm like, this is why I have a hard time taking these people seriously. And I'm like, let me get back to work. Well, that's exactly it. And I think work. one thing, and we'll get into some of your DEI stuff because I have some folks yeah. I want to throw at you, but I agree yeah. with the, 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 my answer to your question is that it's tribalism. That's yeah. the, that's the answer, right? It, so for me, historically, when I was too lazy to actually look at the ballots, <laughs> you know, before I voted, yeah. <laughs> I would, I would literally just click on anything that was Democrat. <laughs> just, mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't look at the candidates. I was like, bang, Democrat, where'd you come? Democrat, Democrat, or yeah. ask, ask a, you know, liberal friend of mine, Hey, what did you vote on that bill? I didn't, I couldn't discern yeah. the language. Oh, vote right. no. Real. Right. Cause the language Real. was gobbledygook half the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They say things like, so true. if you vote for this, that means you hate babies. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I hate yeah. babies. Well, I don't hate babies. Right. And yeah. so you're worried about, Oh, if I vote for this, they're going to, they're going to torture babies. Yeah. So like, I, I don't understand what this language means, but yeah, I, I had, I was, I was part of that. Right? Oh, I was part God. of that. And I think as I kind of moved out of my, you know, career from in media to, you know, journalism and, and understanding mm -hmm. stories from a evidentiary perspective, that changes everything. Yeah. Right. And that yeah. actually gets us into yeah. the next piece. If you want to look at tribalism and you and mm -hmm. I talked about this, the affirmative action ruling, the, the students for fair action, 
lawsuit against Harvard and UNC is an example of this. It just, it's everywhere. It's polarized. It's, it's on the left, on the right. Everyone agrees um, with their own story. And for those who don't know, it was a lawsuit filed by Asian Americans against Harvard and University of North Carolina specifically in that they were claiming discrimination based on their ethnicity of being Asian. And mm -hmm. to, to truncate this whole, it was pretty complicated, but the, we pulled some public records on this specifically with the expert witnesses on the plaintiff side. And there's a gentleman, a Duke scholar, professor named mm -hmm. Peter Arcadino Cano. And he basically showed through data that they did discriminate mm -hmm. against them. Mm -hmm. And there were test scores for Asian Americans that had to be significantly higher to compete in mm -hmm. elite mm -hmm. colleges. And what he talked about and what a lot of the folks talked about specific to the ruling was that unlike what we were talking about earlier, where black and, and white people can can share the resources, it's not pie. There's plenty of it for everyone. Yeah. What they were saying about this specific case at the elite universities is that it is a zero-sum game. So that mm -hmm. if you do say, hey, you Asians, which we see too much of a percentage of, we want to make sure there's more diversity, we're going to discriminate against you. They did this, and this is what they were found in the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So again, then you thought, mm -hmm. I have my liberal friends saying, oh my God, we've dialed the affirmative action back 100 years, we're going in the wrong direction, um, you know, this is Russia, and all the stuff that I heard from my, my friends on the left. Mm -hmm. And the reason I wanted to broach this topic with you as an academic and intellectual is that a lot of what got lost in this mainstream media was that this was an Asian thing. <laughs> it, it, the plaintiffs were Asian. This wasn't a black and white thing as much as people wanted to talk about it. And the reason mm -hmm. that I mentioned it to you as an important piece to our tribalism and, and what we're fighting about is that the, and, and this is who we can talk about now, one of the pieces that is not discussed really in the press was that they held an exclusion out for the military. As yeah. an example, say, so, hey, you know, we believe that diversity is really important in the military. <laughs> and that was the yeah. most perplexing piece for me, specific to the rulings from, you know, the Roberts yeah. Court yeah. and yeah. Justice Clarence Thomas himself. And you're looking at that and going, okay, so if it's valuable to the military, why? And that was what I wanted to get yeah. your take on. Why, why yeah. would they create this piece versus, because I agreed with the ruling to be clear on, on what they did with the Asians. And then my bias, I have to throw in. My wife is Chinese and I've been yeah. part of a Chinese culture for 15 years now. And mm -hmm. this is a culture that does study unbelievably hard. My wife's parents mm -hmm. came from Taiwan and they were poor and they were ridiculed for their accents in their eyes. And, you know, they were, they, they mm -hmm. did not come in in a good place, right? They earned, mm -hmm. they worked really, really hard to be where they are today. And when their children mm -hmm. then apply for school and they're being punished based on ethnicity, that bothered me. So I just want to say that. Mm -hmm. But the, the mm -hmm. idea around mm -hmm. the, the idea around this this holdout specific to the military is what I want really wanted to get your take on because that was, as I said, that was perplexing to me. Um, there's so much there. <laughs> it is. I just dropped the bomb. No, no. I mean, you, you, this is a. Um... This is a very, uh, I'm going to try to speak truthfully and to some extent in draft form. Okay. And while well, I thought about this, you know, I would also try to avail myself, just be, just kind of express 
the way I, you know, makes sense for me. I, I think about like, so to, to, to respond to this, I, the military exclusion, I think then that demonstrates even further that was an ideological decision. And so I, if I was a plaintiff, my, the, the sort of, um, the bittersweet aspect of the decision is that it had to come with a court like this. Mm. That this court had to be the one. That a court no has that demonstrated that it is, that it a court that it is not worthy of the integrity of the Supreme Court. And that is just my position on it, whether it's about its politics relative to racial justice and reproductive justice to speech. It's like it, the list goes on and on. These are, these are, these are, this is a body that is lost in legitimacy um, in the minds of so many, many people. And we have to do something about it. We have to do something about it. We have to do something about the Supreme Court. So I say this is not a sore loser saying, but I think that it's like we just need to be, be thoughtful about if this was the actual, if you want the decision that you were, that we, that the folks got under the conditions that you, that you got them, mm-hmm. I would argue that you would pop you. I would, I would want to have it heard before a more impartial body of, of decision makers. And they are not that. So that side, um, that, and that's connected very much to them. And that's actually demonstrated, I think, and illustrated, um, in, in stark belief in that decision to exclude the military because it, ostensibly says like you provide an opportunity for us to do what we want to do that's what you're providing but what we're not going to do is put our nation our nation's military and our nation our national defense in jeopardy that should tell you something right now that means therefore you might be a tool for a larger enterprise that may not be one that you want to be a part of in the larger scheme of things and this is what i always try to say to my folks who are you know who aspire to be part of this sort of idea that they have of the American dream. Be careful, right? Be careful. Mm-hmm. Be careful. There are many ways to achieve joy in uh, the, the American dream. I find it actually really sad and disappointing that so much emphasis is placed on Harvard's and the Yales of the world for what people perceive to be an idea of success. There's intelligent, brilliant people all over the, all over the globe, all over these college campuses everywhere, incredible professors. I think there's an, far too much attention that we just pay to these to these top tier universities. There's, too many of these folks are in you know are in Washington and in the administration. I just think it's imbalanced. It's not. It's an imbalanced. That it's not imbalanced right now to have so so many people from such a small educational environment that they, they educate such a small percentage of us, mm-hmm. and they pride themselves on limiting supply right. to drive demand. That's my other problem with them. And I'm not, I'm not the originator of this argument. It's, I get it from Gladwell. He wrote an essay back in uh, the 2000, I forgot, what is it? Was it the one he wrote? He wrote about, it was back in 2015. He wrote, you know, it was part of, you know, it was connected to a season on his show, um, on, on Gladwell's uh, podcast. Uh, I'm not forgetting and blanking on the name of the podcast right now. It's such a great podcast. Um, but in any event, it was one of the seasons he focused on higher education. And, you know, he really, and all he's such a Canadian in this regard, but he looks at our American systems with such peculiar. He's like curious about why do we do it this way? Mm-hmm. Why have we turned college into this kind of commodity in the first place? Isn't the objective to to make sure we have the most intelligent, you know, population? That we, and if that's the case, and if Harvard could offer more places because it has the resources to do so, well, why don't you just offer more places? Right. right. 
Why are we forcing us to have this absurd conversation? It's only because their value and the value of institutions like them is driven by artificially limited supply and our willing participation in a rigged system. So am I, I'm like, I'm looking at folks and I'm saying, yo, are you, are you that pressed to participate in a system that is designed to not succeed for everybody? I'm not. I'm not. And I, and I actually think that, but, but, but put that in, putting that aside, that is my view. And I understand other people are entitled to have their view of like what it means to go to Harvard, what it means to go to these highly selective schools that only a certain number of people can get in because they've artificially, you know, you know, triggered, deflated the number of folks that can get in because they need to maintain the U.S. News and World, rank, world Ranking. Well, actually, many of them are leaving the U.S. News and World Ranking, but even still. They recognize their value is as a brand that very few people can have access to. And to me, that's an elitist notion that I'm in, I'm in conflict with, that I have struggled, I struggle with. Um, and in my own life, I have children that I'm raising, that I want to have as good, as strong an opportunity to succeed as possible. I don't believe that it's necessary that they go to Harvard or Yale or those schools in order for that to happen. But what I don't also want and I worry about is a society that is, is a society that only values those institutions or industries that only value those institutions, you know? And I think that's the, that's why it, 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 it puts us all at odds with each other. It puts us in conflict with each other. It creates more division among people who have more in common. And so it disappoints me on that level. But it's not right. If we're going to have this system, if we're going to use um, an admission system that we're saying is supposed to be fair, it is not right that it discriminates against, in any way it discriminates against any, any student, especially Asian students who are striving to go to those institutions. So that's, that's, my, that's my feeling on it. And I am now witnessing, and we are, and we talked about it, like, that decision is going to become the bulwark of a host of other decisions that had nothing to do with students getting into Harvard, but it used as a convenient tool that lawsuit to now unravel a very tenuous set of um, opportunities and access points that people who are not part of, you know, they're either not wealthy and don't have access to, to wealth and or come from disproportionately disadvantaged backgrounds don't have the same access to. Right, right. Can well, you hear me? Yeah, man, you sound great. Okay, cool. No, because my, my earphones are dying and I just want to make sure you can still hear me. So no, nah, man, you're good. I know, you're good. I know historically we've yeah. talked about Roland Fryer in the past because I'm a fan and I've read a lot of his reports and his books and his thinking <clears> over the years. Here's where you guys agree, I think. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But I don't know if you read his article. It was called Build Feeder Schools and Make Harvard and Yale Pay for Them. <laughs> so it was mm. a really cool article in the New York Times. And for my readers who didn't read the, this piece or not aware of it, let mm. me just read this for you. If they aren't enough Black and Hispanic applicants who can perform at the level of college would normally require, the thinking goes that schools should drop some key measures of performance in order to admit those students anyway. But this is precisely backward. Instead of making the admissions process shallow, 
elite colleges should deepen the applicant pool, which is what you just said, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, the yeah. simplest, most direct way to do this is for these yeah. schools to found and fund schools that educate disadvantaged students. This argument has allowed elite colleges to sidestep responsibility for far too long. They could fix the problem if they truly wanted to. Elite colleges can operate a network of, say, 100 feeder, middle, and high schools. Academies that are open to promising students and otherwise lack access to high-quality secondary education in cities where such children are common because of high poverty rates and underperforming public schools. A back-of-the-envelope calculation demonstrates that affordability isn't really a serious question. The Ivy eight league schools combined, to say nothing of other highly selective colleges, have endowments worth about $200 billion and counting, a figure expected to exceed a trillion by 2048, and enrollments of around 70,000 undergrads. I have no doubt that underrepresented minority students can achieve at the highest levels. In Daytona Beach, Florida, where I was born, I often witnessed gallons of talent wasted. Brilliant minds rotting in boring classrooms and precocious lives cut short because of routine violence. In the types of private schools that my children attend, I often see teaspoons of talent perfectly nurtured. If we treated mm -hmm. talent in Daytona Beach the way we treat talent in elite private schools, inner city students could compete with any kids across the world. And the reason I like that and the reason I thought you would agree with that, again, I'm not putting your words in your mouth, is he's saying a lot of the same things you are. That they're being yeah. way too, way too, uh, yeah. you know, conservative in how they bring precious. They're being too precious. Yeah, they're not on, on purpose, right? They brag about. Well, there's been, know, I mean, there's been lawsuits. That, there's been lawsuits. You know, I think there was an antitrust lawsuit back in the '80s around price fixing. You know, I think that there's, I mean, elite university Ivy League schools engaging in forms of price fixing. That's not. I mean, at least the allegations been made. I don't know what the. I think there was a. A decision like one of those um, out of court settlements. They all paid some amount of money and recreated it. I imagine in some other shape or form. Um, so the idea of a consortium. I mean, that's that's coming. Look, they like they like the NBA. They like mm -hmm. you know any of these. They're a cartel. Any other they're a cartel by any other name. And so to change the way they operate would actually be writing the wall, right? Putting be writing writing themselves out of relevance. They'd be, you know, to to change that would actually, it's it'd be existentially, you know, it would be an existential threat for them to do that to themselves. I do not imagine it, they would perceive it to be in their interest, at least in the prevailing environment, to engage in that kind of proactive decision making. I think it's a lot to say that some of them are at least sidestepping or moving out of the U.S. News and World Report, you know, as a, as for, for ranking measures. But I think to go to the next level, what you're talking about, you know. <clears throat> I think there's enough. I think there's a pathway to get there. I think there's a, I think that I don't think that I'm not, I don't, I don't disbelieve that radical change in the orientation of institutions of higher education, such as Harvard and Yale and the others of that, of that ilk. I know, I do believe that that can happen, but it would require tremendous leadership, courage, vision, and quite frankly, it would have to encounter tremendous resistance from many of its own people and the very people who have oh, funded the university no themselves. Question. Yeah, no question. And I think that that's what I wanted to share too, because we often talk about the divide of our policies and our, and our 
political tribes, but the one thing that is consistent with all of the aforementioned academics, right? John McCorder, Glenn Lurie, Roland Fryer, yeah. all those cats are, they all believe the same thing you do in the sense that we need to get education here quicker to children of need. It can't start at 18. That's not where you kind of intervene, right? And specifically, like you mentioned, the top 2% of the schools, right, would have these yeah. lofty ambitions to keep uh, people away. You know, Harvard has a 4% admission rate, and we're very yeah. proud of that. Yeah. You're like, great, that's not yeah. something to brag yeah. about, right? Yeah, it's, it's not something so, to brag about. No, and I think that, that, and the weird thing about that is that that's where, for me, if we're actually looking at remedies, as opposed to bad battling each other, that's where we have some commonality in both parties yeah. agree with that. And so like the idea that Fryer has as well as McCorder, as well as glory is they all say the same thing is that we got to educate our kids quicker. And we dealt with this again, proximate uh, versus abstract. Well, I mean, these are, these, these are, I just got to pause. Like these are not, that's not a new idea. Like it's no, not, no, I, but that's one we all the idea on. that if, if what they're adding, yeah, I mean, which is rare, you know, <laughs> on being, being in the, being at the front end of the education experience with a daughter in preschool and a son who's in Montessori. Like, so I'm in that, I'm watching a number of things. I'm watching parents early on make decisions about where they're going to send their school, their children, mm-hmm. what school, what side of town, you know, all sorts of, it's all things are setting up the next move. People are, it's like yeah. a game of chess. And oh, what, what brutal. it does is, and what, what we've done is, as a society, we turned it into this. Um, it's called. It's it's another form of the Hunger Games, and yeah. we're already in, we're indoctrinated in, indoctrinated into a Hunger Games mentality about education, and about and therefore, those families that could choose to stay and strengthen schools and the communities in which they live. And I'm not saying they should. I'm saying that they could. Right. They have the means to do so, and one of the means by which they might need to do it is by creating a community of people who make some kind of commitment to invest and be here, which I think happens in some environments. The alternative is that people, you know, just kind of every person for themselves, you know, and like get the best education you can get for your kids. And like, you know, then enrich it with some activities after school and you do this, that, and third and blah, 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 blah. I mean, every, I know, I understand that all bets are off for people when it's their children. All it changes because I can tell you as someone who deals with the lottery system here in, in San Francisco, yeah. our children go to a mandarin immersion school um, mm-hmm. and their academic rigor is really high. And so it's one of those things where if you look at what took place here in, in San Francisco as well as New York City recently, uh, they have two public schools that are of very high esteem. Lowell here in San Francisco yeah. and Stuyvesant in New York City, yeah. both of which have about yeah. a 70% Asian population in the school. So they're mm-hmm. being criticized heavily for that, by the way. And so they removed the testing criteria for both schools. And it was yeah. a disaster. And that was, this, that was the, the, this is an example too, buddy, is of, of when I watch this stuff, at, even as a liberal, I'm like, yeah, no, that doesn't work. You can't take kids you know, in this specific circumstance, it was African-American and Hispanic kids, and they put them into this really rigorous academic program on both coasts. Mm -hmm. And these young Mm -hmm. men and women were then known as the lottery kids, you know, which got really cruel Mm -hmm. and shitty, um, which kids can be. But but how is that different than what happened in colleges 40, 50 years ago? I mean, this is what was happening with the first students who arrived at Yale 
in mass as a number. The first ones that that's, I guess what I'm suggesting is only just that that isn't, to some extent we should have, that that's not, we've, we've got data to demonstrate that this was likely going to happen. But does that mean we abandon it right away? Or does that mean we then understand that there's going to be a recoil initially, and then there's an opportunity that the recoil effect might kick in over a five. So what did we learn from the experiments that the places that have seen success, what did we learn from those? So I haven't gone to a place like, gone to Sidwell Friends, a Quaker school in Washington, D.C., considered a you know, fairly rigorous um, uh, uh, curriculum, curricular experience. Um, it is now it is now a majority-minority school, right? Which is really interesting. That's and awesome. I didn't know this, but, you know, I'm... And they have yet, they have not seen a diminish or loss in their academic rigor or in their academic performance or the college acceptance rate. They have not observed any of these negative impacts. But what they have done is, and I'm not saying that they've gotten it all right at all times, but they certainly have not, but they've been in a committed relationship with diversity for half a century at this point. And that was so the schools. And did they get, the did they get that do, training? Yeah ahead of time right so they didn't come they in at 14 and then say oh now we're going to start to teach you how to think and how to learn and how to read right that's the yeah, thing i definitely think late. yeah i i definitely i definitely think so what i i think in my experience and i only have my own my own experience to back <laughs> it up i think that high school's too late to do those kinds of to do i that. do too i think it i think honestly my what I what my experience was I I made the transition in in middle school, and what I will reflect back when I reflect back and think about it what I experienced in that time was there was academic rigor yes but it wasn't such far the gap wasn't brought wasn't there wasn't such an extreme gap that I couldn't catch up in the places where where there was a gap but moreover what was even more important was the social relationships that were being formed. So that I had people to study with or people right. who wanted to hang out and, and help help me or I can help them. And so I so I think about how we do that integration in those kinds of environments. There needs to be, I, I don't know, did you create a mentor system for those young people? Was there some kind of structured way in which they were going to be connected with somebody? I remember in law school, that was what happened. Get, I got to law school. You get like a buddy right away and he's going to guide you through and support you. Did they do that here? Was that part of the way? Because I know it's not just about your ability to show up and do well on a test. There are a lot of people who could probably do well in the test, but there were a lot of other things that got in the way of their being do, being able to do well. And it wasn't just that they didn't know the material. And so I don't like the argument being presented that they couldn't meet, that it was strict, that their, that whatever success we didn't see was a function of those, them not being academically prepared. Because I don't think that the academic experience is the entire experience that people are having in high school. There's a social experience. Mm-hmm. There's a familiar experience that's happening. There's a variety of adolescence development experience. And so if we only want to point to and say, oh, they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't keep up academically, I think that's actually, we're telling a lie. Because then we're excluding all the social factors that they might have been experiencing. How long did it take to you to school? Two hours. I had to take four buses. I had to get up with a crack of dog. Haven't done this before. All of that stuff matters. And if we only look at the, how they do on the quarterly, on the, on the, at the end of the year academically and say whether they were successful or failure or the idea was a bad idea, I think we've missed the point. And so I don't agree <laughs> that shift changing these policies to be, create more opportunity for more young people to get into high schools uh, that, are, that are more selective is a bad idea. I think the way we have decided to, to determine what is 
what is worthy of access, like what should be seen and what should be evaluated for the point of act is too narrow. I think only focusing on, can you like, I just think that's too narrow. I think it's not a reflection of, it's not a reflection of how anybody operates in the workforce. It's not a reflection of how our society, what our society needs. I don't just need people who, I don't want, I don't need, I'm not saying this is what, what young people are. I'm just suggesting that there are other things and other aptitudes that we need to start to actually value and begin to score and to give credit for, because that's what keeps our society going. We don't just function because we got smart people. We function because we have kind people and we have empathetic people and we have people who show up for other people and all that shit matters. All that shit matters. It does. And and that, that's why I love talking with you, man, because that, that's (laughs) number one. I don't know exactly how quick we pulled the trigger on this, but it was quick. So we did not measure all of these, you know, these multivariate pieces to this pie. And when you mentioned the bus, it's funny you mentioned that because that's one thing specifically that took place this morning. So I got up this morning to take my son to soccer practice before school and our garage mm-hmm. door opener doesn't work. There's something wrong. The thing came off. Whoa. the chain. Okay. And I said, I, I got to, I sold. So we come back up and I said to my wife, I, I got to get my notes together for my podcast. <laughs> I can't, I can't yeah. get kids to school. I said, can you take Kingston to school? Who's 12? And their schools all the way across town. Yeah. But yes. So my wife said, oh, let's go, bud. And it was eight o'clock and, and his class starts at 930 because he normally has soccer practice in the morning. Yeah. So he's like, why do we have to leave now? And she says, well, because we're taking the bus. And he said, okay. I don't know if my son has ever been on a bus. So they got on the bus <laughs> and yep. it went about two miles. And then they're going to take a connecting to a subway to get yep. to the train to his school. Yeah, and they got mm-hmm. out of the the bus and the subway, and the subway was broken down, and so they came back out of the subway and they stood in front of this, you know, this donut shop with a bunch of, you know, punks <laughs> laying around and drug addicts, which I'm sure you've heard about in San Francisco. There's a lot of drug addicts here, and mm-hmm. so there were people laying there in their own pee and, <laughs> you know, yeah. on fentanyl, and so like my son was traumatized by this. Like he was saying, to, and I talked about, yeah, like, sure. He's like, mommy, this is gross. What's going on? And, and, and she's like, babe, our son's so spoiled. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't even think of that. So to your point is this, is that it took them an hour and 10 minutes to get to school today. And then it took my wife another hour to get back on the bus. So she was gone for two and a half hours. This Mm -hmm. is an example of what you just highlighted, which I didn't. And I've said this to even my wife, our children are so spoiled. You know, they get in their overpriced SUV and they listen to their music mm-hmm. when their daddy drives them to school. And, and yeah. I pick them up at soccer practice and I think, and we, you know, we nurture their environments and they have chess and they have music and they have books in the house. And like, that's a very yeah. different piece. And I, it would be probably to your point, And I would love, I actually will dive into this a little bit more. It's like, how fast do we pull the trigger? on these schools like Lowell and Stuyvesant because it didn't work. You know, was it a month? Was it six weeks? It, it wasn't more than a year. That much I can no, tell you from my own no, reporting. I mean, so this it, is the whole it, thing it with longer to do that, you know? Yeah, of course it does. We get, I, I say this all the time. I watch us as a society make investments that don't yield benefits and gains in all different aspects, in all different sort of walks of life. I see it, I see companies make investments that don't yield returns. R&D departments are like an accepted form of, an accepted sort of in sunken costs quite often in organizations, knowing that they might be one great idea that will then help fund the others. But we're going to sink a lot of cost into these things. Yeah. I guess the point I'm just trying to make is that we give up too quickly on things that are hard. 
Yeah. Give up too quickly on things that are hard. And especially when they're hard in the way that they challenge us to reevaluate values, they challenge us to be, you know, our higher selves, like more generous, more graceful, more all these things. Like, and it's not our fault necessarily because we live in an indignant society. You know, indignation, you know, is one of my favorite Philip Ross books, but it's like this sort of indignation that people had around the shifting of these policies at these schools. Like, how dare these schools let these black and brown kids who are not as intelligent or not as hardworking as mine? That's the, and that's what I heard, indignation. Hmm. And we are, and the ease with which indignation is, is, is like cast upon black and brown bodies. Like we're totally like, it's like, these are still young people. These are still, these, these are still, oh, well, they can go to some lesser school. I wouldn't have a problem if this wasn't a feeder. Stuyvesant wasn't the feeder to the opportunity, like to the creme de la creme. And if we're saying that we're going to be a society run by the elites, if we're saying that we're going to be a society run by elites, then we need to make sure that those elites really reflect the diversity of who we are. And not just like in our singular performances in one in one or two academic subjects and our ability to do a great extracurriculars, but there's other things we have to figure out how to measure because we need other capacities and capabilities in our world right now. We need more of people who can cooperate and are willing to cooperate and work together. We need more of, you know, folks who are Willing at this point, I'm worried about teachers. I'm worried that we're going to have a teaching profession in 20 years. You know, you know, we need more of that, and that's going to require more of us as human beings, and it's going to have require us to look beyond, you know, our own individual selves. And I will say this: I'm, I've spent some time with some younger folks, you know, have nieces in their mid 20s and younger, and I'm not, and I actually think a lot of them are built different. I think a lot of them are built a little bit different. I don't think they're all as selfish and selfish. And they are, there's an entitled component, absolutely, right? But I find that there's a recognition and a value of diversity. There's a value of their friends, the difference amongst their friends. There's a desire to work in places that reflect and respect diversity and, and are inclusive. There's a desire, like, that's not going away. That's just going to get stronger. Yeah. And so if there's any argument for why we need to keep doing this work or why this work, because it's because it's, these young people aren't going to have it. They see the world. They know climate change is necessary. They know that, you know, that we're moving towards like a, a more green economy. They know that in order to survive, we're going to have to change the way we live. They know. They know. I'm not imputing, I'm not saying that they're the most brilliant beings and they've figured it all out. But I do think that we are missing it if we're not realizing that they are the ones who are going to be dictating our workspaces, political landscape, and whatever else have you in the years to come. They're a big fucking cohort. They're engaged right. with each other, if nothing else. So we well, can keep I, having these adult com we can have these adult conversations all we want. Keep talking about a bunch of old people chirping, chirping, and chirping, and keep trying to fight shit and fight shit and hold shit back and block all this. And okay, keep keep doing that. You're creating, you're sowing the seeds of your own undoing because these young people are watching you. They're watching us. And I think they believe the same thing that the Supreme Court believes on the diversity exclusion for the military. It's necessary. So my kids go mm -hmm. to a school that is approximately 10% white. It's mm -hmm. lots of Asians. Uh, and I mean Asians in all of the Filipino, Indian, yeah. Chinese, yeah. Japanese, uh, African-American, Hispanic. And they love it because they've never done anything else. They've gone to a Mandarin immersion school since... They were kids yeah. and at their elementary school was 5% white. 
And so for us as parents, we recognize that. And I think that to your point, I couldn't agree more, is that the younger generation is going to save this for us. Because us yeah. out here pontificating about what should be, should be done. They're like, nah, it's, just, it's, it's in front of me. I see it every day. I see yeah. the importance of this. And if I can't yeah. get my friend to study, because my, my buddies, you know, my kids, their friends all study just like they do, right? Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of rigor in their households. And so yeah. to your point earlier, it is about the community. It is about, yeah. you know, modeling this behavior, yeah. not just from the parents, but from the village in which they're raised. Yeah. I think they stay raised. Yeah, it's very important. Bro. We um, gotta let you go, man. I know, but we could keep talking forever. I, I let you go way over. And again, bud, it's this is why I love talking to you because I learned so much. And that's the hope with my listeners is they learn from you as well. I know you got a lot going on. I know you went over your time today. <laughs> so thank you so much. No, man. Joe, so, so I wanna I wanna I'm I i do not like I get weird, I feel weird at the end of these conversations because I always feel like Dan did I hope I hope there's something in here all the rambling that there's something of of value to your listeners, oh, to you. Um, and I, I just want to say thank you, man. And I, and I said, I say this with utmost sincerity, thank you for taking the idea seriously. Thank you for taking me seriously as a, as a thinker and as a contributing voice to a conversation that's not only in your head, but it's amongst your audience. Um, I, I mean, I really appreciate the opportunity to spend time thinking about and talking and sharing and, you know, consider you a friend you know and i'm much i wish the best for the show for the, i mean not for the show for the for the company you know for the brand for the company for the idea thank you dude i really appreciate it. you know i'll give you a hug if i could reach you from dc but thanks a lot <laughs> for coming thanks for tuning in everyone if you dig what we're doing over here please subscribe and while you're at it please download an episode or two and leave a review i'd love to hear your thoughts until next time big hugs.